So, you will recall that the Israelites had been wandering around in the wilderness for about 40 years now. And Aaron has just died. And they were at a place called Kadesh. And Mount Hor is further north. And further north still is the land of Canaan, where the Israelites are eventually going to displace the Canaanites and live. They had requested, you might recall, to travel east through Edom so that they could go to the other side of the Red Sea and then go up and come in westward across Jordan, but the Edomites said no, they couldn't. So they're still down here by Mount Hor where Aaron has just died. And they're basically in the same spot roughly, or the same general area roughly as they were about 40 years ago when um, they refused to go into the land, and then the Lord said, okay, well then you're gonna have to go wander around in the wilderness. And then they said, okay, we will go up then. But then the Lord said, no, don't go up because I'm not gonna go with you, too late. And they went up, and it was actually this same group of people who came down and defeated them 40 years ago. So now they're kind of in the same sort of scenario again. And the people from this region come out against the Israelites again, seeing them now encroaching upon the southern borders of the land of Canaan. So these people led by a guy called the king of Arad, I don't think we need to get deeply into exactly where all of these places were in our modern 21st century context. Sufficient to say, he's obviously one of the kings in the region. They come out again against the Israelites who are now sort of on the southern border of the land of Canaan. I think that's sufficient. It says that he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Verse 2 of Numbers 21 says, And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah, and according to our footnote, Hormah means destruction. So this is what's happening in Numbers 21, 1-3. The Israelites are on the southern cusp of the, the Promised Land. These people come against Israel, take some of them captive. Israel says to the Lord, we'd like to go against these guys and devote them to complete destruction. Will you give them into our hand? And here's the Lord's answer. Yes. Alright, that's what happens in this passage. I almost passed over this little section. God willing, next Sunday night we will look at verses 4 to 9 about the bronze serpent. And it's a, a much more familiar passage to us. It's, it's much more readily apparent that there would be some profitable material here to study. I almost passed over these three little verses. Especially because I didn't really see how I could include them in the message on the bronze serpent. It seems to be just a little section of its own, kind of tucked in between the death of Aaron and the bronze serpent without a clear textual connection either to the death of Aaron or to the bronze serpent. 
So I almost said, let's just pass this over. But I think there's enough here to supply us with a profitable meditation if we really stop and think about it. After all, what happens in this passage? The Israelites kill everyone in several cities. It's recorded in just a few short verses, but it's really quite a loaded cluster of verses. Let's look at a few theological concepts that are obviously related to the events recorded here. Beginning with this, the judicial sentence passed upon the Canaanites. This is a theological concept that we need to have in our minds as we enter this section of narrative. What was the underlying reason for the destruction of the Canaanites? We would have to turn all the way back to Genesis 15 to get an answer to this. Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16, where we read this. The Lord said to Abram, when he was in the land of Canaan, by the way. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So what's that a prophecy of? Egypt, right? But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age. Genesis 15, 16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the underlying reason for the destruction of the people of this vicinity, whether they're called Amorites or Canaanites, or well, we're going to read a passage later where there's a, a further subdivision into several people groups, but sometimes the Amorites is shorthand, or sometimes the Canaanites is shorthand, but we're talking about the same area of the world, and the same people. What is the underlying reason for the destruction of these people? According to Genesis 15, 16, their sins are going to reach a certain point where the Lord says, enough. And their sins will attain this full measure, and then the Lord will use the Israelites as his judicial instrument to wipe these people out. The general paradigm for the conquest of the promised land, then, is total, utter, complete destruction. We turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Listen here. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, when the Lord gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, 
and show no mercy to them. This is the judicial sentence of the Lord. Not that they will kill a bunch of them, but that they will utterly wipe them out with no mercy. This seems on face value to include even children. Let's look at how it played out in Joshua chapter 6 when the Israelites take Jericho. Joshua said to the people, shout! Joshua 6 chapter, chapter 6 verse 16 and following. Joshua said to the people, shout! For the Lord has given you the city and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall went down flat, so that the people went up into every city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. They, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old. Oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. The judicial sentence passed upon the Canaanites is that when their sin has reached full measure, the Israelites are to go in and wipe them all out, including even the children. So in Numbers chapter 21, when the people of Israel say, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. This is the paradigm of what destruction means. And the Lord says, yes. And so, the Israelites devoted them and their cities to destruction, which means they killed everyone. Oxen, sheep, men, women, children, everything. Devoted these cities to destruction. This was the judicial sentence passed upon the Canaanites. And coming to realization in this particular time and place for this particular subset of the people of Canaan. Let us consider now the question of the justice of God. This was God's sentence. This was the sentence that God passed. The question obviously arises then, was it a just sentence? Is God just to pass this sentence on the people of Canaan? Well, first, I would simply turn you to Romans chapter 9, 21 and 22, which says this, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? and another for dishonorable use. 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? When we consider the justice of God, I find that many people, many people are very quick to try to rush to point out that the people on whom God passes judicial sentence are guilty. The people whom God destroys are guilty. And I'm going to make that same point in a moment. But before we even get to that point, there is a point antecedent to that, which can resolve all of our questions about the justice of God, which is this. The potter has a right over the clay to make it into whatever he wishes it to be. Simple as that. God has every right to make a lump for dishonorable use. God has every right to create someone for destruction. That's God's prerogative. Shocking, offensive to some people, but it's very logical, isn't it? That God is God, and He can make whatever and whoever He wants and do with it whatsoever He pleases. That's one of the that come with being God. So I would simply first and foremost make that point. And I would suggest to you that it would be sufficient to rest the case there. And say whatsoever God does, that is the rule and the standard against which everything else is to be measured. What is the clay to answer back to the potter and say, we have measured you by our rulers. We've, we've taken a 12-inch ruler out of our kit and we've held it up against you, against, held you up against it, God, and we have found you wanting. You see, that's completely backwards. The standard and the measure by which any question of justice and rightness could possibly be evaluated is the standard of what God does. God is the normative standard by which we can measure anything. So let me make that point first of all. Secondly, the scripture tells us very plainly that we all, including our children, yes, even our babies, are guilty. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 makes this point very clearly. Sin came into the world through one man. Who was that? Adam. And death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. 
God counts everyone who is represented by Adam as guilty because of Adam's sin. If God did not count them as guilty, they would not die. So the very fact that death spread to all men shows that in God's eyes, God counts everyone as sinners. Some people speak of an age of accountability. And they say, well, children are too young to be held accountable for right and wrong below a certain age. In other words, God's law doesn't apply to them. God's law can't condemn children of a certain age because they're too little to actually be meaningfully under it. But in verse 13 of Romans chapter 5, it says, Sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, here's the question then. Is sin counted with respect to babies? Well, do they die? Yes, they do. Which means the judicial punishment for sin is applied even to babies. And so if sin is not counted where there is no law, then that means that even babies are under the law and condemned as sinners. Alright? This age of accountability concept has no biblical basis. Whether God is merciful to babies who die in infancy is a separate question. But whether they are guilty, strictly speaking, or not, is clearly and plainly resolved by Scripture. In Psalm chapter, well, not Psalm chapter, Psalm 51, the 51st Psalm, David says this, In verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, you might think that that means that his mother conceived him by means of a sinful sexual encounter. But that, that would not fit with the context of the psalm, which is David confessing David's sinfulness before God. So where perhaps there's grammatical latitude in terms of how we would understand that, the context resolves it for us. And it tells us that it is David's iniquity and that it is David's sin which is in view here. Which means that he is talking about bearing iniquity and sin ever since conception. So it's God's sovereign prerogative, first of all, to create people for destruction. But it is true that the people whom God destroys, all of them, right down to the babies, are guilty. 
Therefore, the judicial sentence passed upon the Canaanites, which was complete and utter destruction, which was our first point, is just, which is our second point. We come to our third point, which is this. The dealings of God with the Gentile nations in Old Testament history, in the temporal affairs of Old Testament history, are paradigmatic of God's decree of reprobation. Let me say that again. The dealings of God with Gentile nations in terms of temporal judgments and winning wars against them and devoting them to destruction or rescuing God's people or sending plagues upon them like Egypt and so on and so forth. These dealings of God with the Gentile nations serve as a paradigm or function in an analogous way to God's decree of reprobation. Now you might ask, well, what is God's decree of reprobation? Our 1689 Confession, chapter 3, paragraph 3, says this, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ. To the praise of his glorious grace. Others being left to act in their sin. To their just condemnation. To the praise of his glorious grace. Or pardon me. To the praise of his glorious justice. In other words it is this passing over. This leaving of non-elect persons to act in their sin. Or some would state it more strongly. This decree of God. That some will be saved and that some will be damned. This other side, this not election, is what we call God's decree of reprobation. In Isaiah 43 and verse 3, we read this. Well, let me, let me read the beginning of verse 1 of Isaiah 43. When now, thus says the Lord... He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange. For your life. Consider that the Lord was prepared to kill men in order to rescue Israel. 
the Lord was prepared to send plagues upon Egypt in order to bring his people up. The Lord was prepared to devote these Canaanite cities to destruction in order to give his people their land. The Lord does not deal the same with Israel as with the Gentile nations in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter, chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Esau, or pardon me, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. So the Lord took the descendants of Esau and settled them in a place that eventually was laid waste and became a desert. Whereas he took his people, the children of Jacob, and settled them in a land flowing with milk and honey. He did not deal with these two brothers the same. He did not deal with the nation of Edom the way he dealt with the nation of Israel. He did not deal with the nation of Egypt the way he dealt with the nation of Israel. He did not deal with the, na the Canaanite nations, the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Girgashites and so forth. He did not deal with any of those people who inhabited the Promised Land the way that he dealt with Israel. And Romans 9 picks this up. Verse 10, Romans 9 says this, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau, I hate it. Paul takes this idea of God treating the Israelites differently than the Edomites. And he says, this illustrates God's purpose of election. And God's decree of reprobation. In Romans 9, we're not talking about temporal dealings, winning wars, and being settled in good lands and whatever. In Romans 9, we're talking about who are the beneficiaries of the promises that God made to Abraham and to Israel, which are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. We're talking about salvation in Romans 9. And Paul says, look, you can see the way that God dealt is differently with Israel than with Edom. This illustrates God's sovereign prerogative of unconditionally electing some apart from any merit in that. And God 
damning others. The dealings of God with the Gentile nations in the Old Testament in terms of defeating them before his people, destroying them, sending plagues upon them, rescuing his people from their hands, etc., etc., dealing differently with Israel than with the Gentile nations. This is paradigmatic of God's decree of reprobation. God does not deal with all people in this world the same way. God has set his love upon some, which is not so much the focus of our sermon tonight. The focus of our sermon tonight is there are people whom God intends to destroy. The focus of our sermon tonight is that God has passed sentence on people in this world. And God could have done it simply by sovereign prerogative, apart from any prior consideration of their guilt, just form them for destruction and destroy them. That's what Romans 9, 21 says God has every right to do as potter over the clay. But, in fact, all of these people whom God intends to destroy are guilty. They're guilty, as we've seen, from conception, according to Psalm 51, and according to Romans 5. This is, this is very sobering, but this is what the scripture tells us. Many people don't like to consider it, but it's true. We see, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna preach this same sermon every time we see Israel winning a war as they go into Canaan. We're gonna read about defeat of this king and defeat of that king. And we may not we're not working necessarily verse by verse through the whole book of Numbers, but we're following chronologically through. We may not stop and camp out and preach on every single one. But at the cusp of this conquest narrative, at the outset of this conquest narrative, I want to make this point. To be real clear about the judicial sentence passed upon the Canaanites, the justice of God in that, and the paradigm that that gives us of just how intent God is on blessing his elect people and the intention that he has also to destroy those who are not his people. What are the applications of this? What's the point of this? Just to send us home heavy-hearted and burdened. No, not entirely. <laughs> I think the main application is that it helps us to see God correctly. When I was a... I think I was probably at most a young teen, 13 or so, 
might have even been a little bit younger. Because my brother, who's five years younger than me, was pretty little. He was probably at most eight. Might have been five or six, I don't really remember. But my family went camping. And we were somewhere far from home, I don't remember where, we were on a road trip. And there was a campsite. It wasn't real wilderness camping. It was the kind of camping where there's a campsite here and 20 feet over there's a campsite there. And 20 feet over there's a campsite there. So it was almost like just a little village of middle class suburban folks sleeping in tents. All right? It's not the, the, the real wilderness. But there were signs saying, watch for bears. And this... Um, campsite had fire pits at each campsite and so as dust settled in my family was sitting around this fire and my brother had his back towards the like there was kind of like a general store and office of this campsite there were flush toilets in there and there was a pool and you know pe people lived on site to run the campground and so on and so forth. And these people had a dog. And my brother was sitting with his back to the main office. And this dog was old and obese. And as it started making its way over to say hello to our family, it was huffing and puffing. <laughs> and my brother had seen all of these watch for bear signs. And my brother was sitting with his back towards the office. And he's a big, he's a big, strong, he's a police officer now, he's in his 30s, he's six inches taller than me and muscular and tough. But he wasn't then, he was a kid, he was a small kid. And he was sitting there in his chair. And you could just see terror in his eyes. And at, at first I didn't realize what was going on, why he was so scared. And you could just see him getting more and more scared as this friendly but morbidly obese old dog came closer and closer. He thought, of course, that there was a bear coming. But if he could see what I could see, then he would know that there was no need to worry because that wasn't a bear. I remember another time I was at church as a kid and I had invited the parents of a friend of mine to attend church with us. And they had accepted the invitation this particular Sunday. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, was printed on the bulletin. And my friend's father pointed at the verse, which says this, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. My friend's dad pointed to that, those two little words, fear God. And he said, you see this? That's what I don't like. And that's, what I, that's why I don't believe in organized religion. In other words, what he was saying to me was what I was saying to my brother. If you could see what I see, there's nothing to fear. What he was saying 
essentially was God's not a bear. And even though the preachers tell you about God's wrath and hell and it sounds scary, if you could see what I see, John, you would realize that God's not a bear. That there's nothing to fear. That you don't actually need to fear God. But according to Numbers 21, verses 1 to 3, God is a bear. And you should fear God. According to Numbers 21, 1 to 3, God is unequivocally on the side of his people. And so if I could put it this way, God is a mother bear with her cubs, so to speak. God is willing to wipe out these Canaanites in order to give their land to his people. God is a bear. And God is a mother bear with his cubs, so to speak. According to Numbers 21, 1-3, God is just in acting like a modern bear with his cubs. God is just in acting like a bear, period, apart from any consideration of his cubs. If we were walking in the Canadian wilderness summer, hiking together, and I, if I were a real outdoorsman who could track with great skill and recognize different types of sign on the trail and whatnot, and I said, there's a grizzly bear nearby, and we kept hiking, and then I said, look, the tracks and the sign point this way to that cave. Why don't you go in and see if there's a grizzly bear there? Well, of course, you wouldn't. And if you went in and you got mauled and killed, and that news story broke, do you realize that everyone would justify the bear? And no one would justify you. Do you realize that? No one would say, what a stupid bear. What an unjust bear. You understand? And why? Here, here's the point that I'm making. Why? Because you are on his territory. You are in his territory. And so he has every right to act like a bear in his territory. Now whose, whose world is this? Whose life is what we call your life? God's. That's the answer to both of those questions. This is God's world. And what we call your life is not even most fundamentally your life. If I make something, it does not acquire autonomy when I finish creating it. It's still mine. 
This is God's world. And whether you believe in God or not, whether you trust in Jesus or not, you are God's human. And God has sovereign prerogative to do whatsoever He will with you and with your life. And when you account further for the fact that you are guilty in God's eyes, God is totally justified to act like a bear. And you are on His territory. Now, this is the first application of Numbers 21, 1-3, that it will help us see God correctly. Now, seeing God correctly has its own applications. This perception of God can keep us out of hell, personally. There are two ways to go with this. One is to go the way that my friend's father went and say, I don't want to believe in and worship a God like that. And to tell yourself that it's going to be safe to go in the cave. Living your life that way won't end well. Because whatever you think about God will not change who God objectively is. The other way to make use of this is to recognize, look, if God really is a bear and there is something to be afraid of, and God is like a mother bear with her cubs, and I'm on the bear's territory, the other way to go with that is to seek peace with God, seek to be made right with God. At the end of the sermon, we're going to sing, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Listen, God has provided means of being reconciled to him. Instead of coming out to war against him, or instead of relegating him to the periphery of our lives and trying to ignore him, to recognize who he is and to surrender to him, to turn from self-autonomy to recognize his sovereignty and his rightful lordship over us, that's what repentance is, and to trust that there really is this fountain where we may be washed in the blood of the Lamb and be made clean. Come, he says, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Recognize that God really is a bear, like a mother bear with her cubs, and we're on his territory. There's something to be afraid of, but God has made provision for us to be reconciled with him through Christ Jesus. Trust in Jesus and repent of your sin and be reconciled to God. Seeing God this way can keep us out of hell personally. Secondly, seeing God this way can comfort us in the face of opposition. 
if a young bear cub had the mind and the awareness of a human, it would realize that it was in no serious danger when mother bear is nearby. And if another of the forest creatures was troubling it, or some foolish humans were encroaching a little too close, it would realize mother bear is nearby and it's just a matter of time until she comes to my rescue. In this world that we go through, we face opposition and mistreatment, but realize that if you belong to God, God is like a mother bear on your side. As we read in Isaiah 43, one of the uses that the prophet makes of this concept is to comfort God's people. Fear not, for I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, church, because God is willing to destroy Babylon for you. Fear not, Israel, for God is willing to plague Egypt for you. Fear not, people of God, for God is going to gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers for you. That's a great comfort. Thirdly, doctrinally, if we understand these concepts, and appropriate these concepts, abide these concepts, make these concepts our own, believe them, hold them. This will answer the question that is often asked about how we can be happy in heaven if we are aware of hell. Many times people have asked me, when we get to heaven, if we know about hell and we know that our loved ones are in hell, how can we be happy? People reason, therefore, will we no longer be conscious of hell? Will we not be conscious of the justice of God demonstrated in hell? Well, if we understand, truly understand, that it is the justice of God that is demonstrated in hell, and that God is acting within His rights as the sovereign and as the judge, and as a bear whose territory everyone else operates on, then we actually won't find hell to be an impediment to our enjoyment of heaven. Soberly consider that. If we have a problem with hell, it's not because hell is a problem. It's because there's a problem with us. Fourthly, if we understand these things, not only will it keep us out of hell personally and comfort us and answer the question about how we can be happy in heaven if we're aware of hell, but fourthly, if we really, really get this, it will imprint so strongly and so thoroughly an impression upon our minds and upon our hearts 
that salvation is profoundly gracious. Salvation is profoundly gracious. If we get that the alternative is just, and that God is operating totally within His prerogative to annihilate nations, to plague nations, to destroy people, to send people to hell, to create people for damnation, to pass over people and leave them to act in their sin, to their just condemnation. If we understand that God is perfectly within His rights to do all of that, we really get this tonight. We will realize just how gracious salvation is. How astounding that there should be a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins where sinners like us can be plunged beneath 